Romans chapter 1. This morning we'll be in verses 24 to 27. Uh, This is really part two of I don't know how many parts, but this whole section in Romans. um, If you have your Bibles, and mine's right there, uh, (laughs) uh, you can look at the context of this letter. So we we are still just in that first chapter, but... Paul introduces himself as a, an apostle, someone who is set apart. Um, he, he addresses the people as those who have been beloved by God, those who have been rescued from their sinful ways, and those who belong to him. And then he gets to verse 16, and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And last week we looked at his flow of thought, and we thought, why would he say that? Um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of all Jew and Greek, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed by faith for faith. Um, And then the next question that kind of flows logically is, why do we need it? Why do we need the gospel? Why do we need this good news of Jesus Christ? And so verse 18 begins this section that we're looking at this morning. Verse 18 says, it is this wrath of God that is being revealed. So that was part one. I'm going to just read that really as a give us context, uh, because it's one big section. It's just hard to keep breaking it up, but we kind of need to for the sake of time. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it known to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So that's our context He is talking about why on earth would God be mad with human beings? Um, And it's an interesting thing that he starts his gospel presentation, as we probably should, of why we need it. Because the wrath of God. Now, it answers a lot of questions. It answers a lot of questions that non-Christian people, atheist people have. If God is good, why is there so much bad? He starts with that. That's his apologetic. I'll tell you why there's so much bad. Because humankind has turned their backs on God. He has revealed himself to them through creation, through his word, and finally through his son. He has given us sufficient knowledge of his existence, even in our own hearts, that there is a God out there. And they have suppressed that truth. And they have turned their backs on him. And that's where we pick up this morning in verse 24. Last week we talked about this exchange of glory, the glory of the almighty God to the glory of created things. And so we pick up in that line of thought at verse 24 this morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, so therefore always points back and says, because of all of this, because of their suppression of the truth, because they've rebelled against him, because of everything that was clearly given to them, they've turned their backs on. He says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, 
who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. You know, about 10 years ago, Carl Truman, who I'll probably reference a few times, uh, came to speak at our mission conference uh, in St. Louis. And a brilliant British theologian and historical theologian. Um, and he spoke at our mission conference. And, and to our church, he said, uh, you need to realize that a time is coming when the view of Christians in our culture, uh, he said, right now people view Christians the overwhelming culture that we live in view Christians as sweet idiots. <laughs> That's how they view us. We're sweet idiots. We're nice. If you want to get a babysitter, even if you're not a Christian, if you get a Christian girl to babysit, the chances are she's going to be good to your kids. You know, so there's the, the common thought in culture was Christians are sweet idiots. They believe all these weird things, but man, their morals are good, and you know they're, they're sweet idiots. And, and Carl told us, he said, but, but the, the, the current flow of our culture is uh, eventually, those who claim what the Bible teaches will be seen as hateful bigots. We're there. Um, and it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, we, we work through a book of the Bible. We take it as it is given. We don't pick and choose. Today's the Sunday we're going to talk about this. We, we, we work through it, and part of it is um, to give credence to what I say, that it's not just, hey, the pastor has this thing he keeps wanting to beat all the time into us. Um, and, and for those of you who are struggling with certain sins to know, um, I talked to him about this, and now he's preaching about it, um, for you to know that it's, it's God's word, and it's also very powerful when it's in context. So this comes to us in context. Uh, the greater context of Romans, and I just encourage you, if you struggle with this message this morning, don't give up. Don't give up on Christianity. Don't give up on its ethics. Read the rest of Romans. It's, it's beautiful. This part of Romans, he is saying... Everyone needs the gospel, all right? And he is, he is, he is going to unfold different things. In a couple weeks, he's going to explain how the most self-righteous people on the planet, the Pharisees and the Jews and himself, he'll use that same phrase, are without excuse. He says, listen, you who say, I've kept this law, I do this, I do this. You too are without excuse before a holy God. Um, and so we come to a text this morning um, where it is this outflow of uh, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And so in your notes that I sent you, I said, how do we get here? Right? And that's a question that a lot of people are asking. Right? How did we get here all of a sudden? Right? Do you know that in the United States of America right now, 25 states... 25 states have some form of law against conversion therapy. Now, conversion therapy, it has a terrible sound to it. It brings, it conjures up all the horrible things that, that psychologists did to, did to people years ago. But basically, the way the law is written, in quotes, it's written to protect 
LBGTQ minors, it is forbidden for a therapist to try and discourage them from changing their orientation and their gender identity. 25 states in our country. Now, there's loopholes in it. If it's a church group, if it's this, it's that. But um, people can lose their license for that. So how do we get here? Well, I, I want you to know that this was written in the first century. Okay, so don't, so don't forget that. It was written in the first century. And, and you know what? There's stuff written um, about a 2400 B.C. Similar stuff. Right, so sometimes uh, evangelicals and American Christians like it's the end. It's getting so bad. Uh, let's cloister away. You know, we, we, we're just gonna. We, it, it, the end is coming. It's never been this bad. Let me tell you, it's been much worse. Humanity has faced much worse. Child sacrifices. Christians thrown to lions. Christians lit on torches uh, to provide light for Nero's parties. Okay, and, and, and so we look at this, and, it, and it, I don't want your response to be, oh, see, we knew that was going to happen. It's just going to get worse. Um, you know, there's nothing we can do. Um, how do we get there? Well, Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy, the letter he writes from prison to Timothy before his death, when he's encouraging Timothy on how to be a pastor and, and, and telling him how to pick leaders and all of that. It's a beautiful book given us how to do church, First Timothy. In chapter 4, he makes this charge, one of several charges he makes to Timothy, his disciple. He says, I charge you, uh, Timothy 4, 1 to 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. These are some strong words. He's sending it from prison about to die for what he's taught. Timothy, I charge you by the living God. I charge you. I am holding you accountable, Timothy. What does he say to him? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Repu reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Reprove. What an what a amazing word. Timothy, when you preach the word, you are going to have to reprove your point over and over again. Timothy, you're going to have to reprove the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over and over again because it will always be under attack. It will always be questioned. Reprove, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Timothy, that's what you're going to do with complete patience and teaching. That's his charge. Timothy, that's what you're to do. As a, as a uh, he had more like a bishop role. Timothy, I charge you by the living God. You have got to preach his word over and over again. You have got to reprove, you have to rebuke, and you have to exhort. And Timothy, you have to be patient. People will forget. It will leak. They will doubt. Cultural pressures will push against whatever it is. Complete patience in teaching. And then in verse 3, for the time is coming, he says, when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths first century AD first century AD Paul tells Timothy 
Timothy, when you teach the gospel, there will be many people that do not like it. Timothy, uh, whenever the gospel goes into any culture, it will challenge deeply held cultural beliefs. Basically, Timothy, the gospel will always challenge self-righteousness. It will always challenge our desire to be thought of as right, whatever we hold on to. And, and for us as Christians, if we hold on to, hey, at least we're not this, at least I don't do that, then that too is going to be challenged by the gospel. Maybe not this week, <laughs> but in coming weeks for sure. So that the gospel becomes beautiful. But how do we get here? It's the age-old thing. Uh, the text I read from Jeremiah, right? He says to them, uh, you have forsaken the Lord and you have gone after lies. You've gone after lies because the people in Jeremiah's time, they were facing exile and punishment and the false teachers were saying, it's because God has forsaken you. So come and join in the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth. Come and join in that and, and you'll be free. And God says to Jeremiah, oh, tell my people there's two sins they've committed. They've left me. They've left me. I'm the source of living water for them. They have left me, and they have dug cisterns. They've dug wells on their own, and those wells will not hold water. So what we are facing now as a church, before we get all overwhelmed and say, I wish we could go back to the good old days, um, what we're facing is nothing new to the church. And in fact, in some ways, it might be a really good opportunity because when it costs to follow Christ, when it costs, we think more deeply about it. We, we, we find that we get less petty. Two men in a foxhole, uh, they, they may have so many things that they don't share in common, but when they have a common enemy, all of a sudden they are a band of brothers. And so... Um, we, we, we shouldn't read into this text and just say, Kuiper, you need to skip over that stuff because that's not sweet anymore. You need to skip these texts because it's pretty offensive. Um, let me tell you, the gospel will always be offensive. It's always offensive to, the, the, to, to our self-righteousness, to mine, even as a Christian, for all these years. The gospel offends me and says, no, Mark, uh, you're not accepted because you're a pastor. You're not accepted because you're a pretty good dad. You're not accepted because your wife thinks you're awesome. You're only accepted because of me. But this is how we got there. We have accumulated teachers that tell us what we want to hear, and it is so prevalent in the church. It's so prevalent uh, in the church. We, we go and like, I like how this guy preaches. I like what this person talks about. I like how this person makes me feel. Um, I, I, I like their coffee. I, Timothy says, as for you, Timothy, don't stray from this. Preach the word, and when you do it, you're going to rebuke people, you're going to reprove of them, and then you're going to exhort them in positive directions. Uh, Carl Truman, um, in his book, Strange New World, which I just think really every Christian should read, uh, gives us really a lot more information to kind of how we got here. But when Ryan Anderson is writing in his introduction, he writes this, um, and he's talking about the person and the modern self kind of in opposition. And he's answering the question, kind of how did we get here? And the question he's answering, how did we get here, Truman poses, and I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie Raising Arizona, but I'm a huge Coen Brothers uh, fan, so you guys, you guys just know that Coen Brothers, um, I hope they're in heaven, but uh, 
Raising Arizona, at the very beginning, uh, Nicholas Cage <laughs> talks about going to jail, and he's sitting in this therapy session. Sitting in this therapy session, and they're talking about their problems, right, to the therapist. And one, this very masculine-looking man says, I feel like I'm a, a woman trapped in a man's body. He says that, and we're all supposed to laugh. Like, it's, it's, it's put there. Now, they wouldn't do it in a movie today, but it's not that old of a movie. I mean, it happened in my lifetime, right? And, and, and he says that because they're building this context of where he is in prison and the kind of people he's around. He's around crazy people. So 20 years ago, that statement would cause us to chuckle. Today, if we chuckle, we are being a hateful bigot. How do we get there? So Ryan Anderson writes, he's the president of ethics and public policy in D.C. The person, as opposed to the modern self, was a creature of God who sought to conform himself to the truth, to objective moral standards in pursuit of eternal life. Modern man, however, seeks to be true to himself. Rather than conform thoughts, feelings, and actions to objective reality, man's inner life itself becomes the source of truth. I don't watch all the animated movies, but I do think that just about all of them are telling our children this. To yourself be true. Don't let anyone tell you who you are. Who do you feel you are? Don't let anyone turn you away. To say no to your feelings is to deny yourself. It says here, the modern self finds himself in the midst of what one writer has described as a culture of expressive individualism, where each of us seeks to give expression to our individual inner lives rather than seeing ourselves as embedded in communities and bound by natural and supernatural laws. Authenticity to inner feelings rather than adherence to transcendent truths becomes the norm. How did we get here? We got here because we want teaching, we want truth, that conforms to our desires. And Christians, we are the same. We, we, we long and we want to sit under truth and teaching that confirms our desires. And churches, many have gone off the deep end, and, and many have gone off the deep end because of good motives, but improper practice. Good motives. We want people to know the grace of Christ. We want people to know that he cleanses every sin, that God sees two types of people, the proud and the humble. The proud are against him and the humble he gives grace. We want them to see that. So let's, let's downplay all of their sin. Let's downplay how much they need a Savior. Let's make it so easy for them. You don't have to give up this, 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 this. When the gospel really says, surrender yourself completely, wholeheartedly, everything, surrender it to Jesus and trust in the one who gave himself for you. Trust in him more than your own feelings, more than your culture, more than all of those things around you. Trust in him who came and knew the depth of your sinfulness and gave himself for you. That's how we got there. The sermon in the sentence this morning is we must be careful which ultimate truth we cling to for it directs our whole life now and in eternity. Uh, so we're going to look at these verses 
um, in, in kind of in three sections. The first is what we would call the exchange of truth, and that's in verses 24 and 25. And there's, a, there's the exchange of worship. And lastly, the exchange of nature. And these are connected, as we talked about it last week. There's this process of truth, worship, nature. Truth, worship, nature. And so the first thing he says, and it, it goes back into the previous text too, but he says they gave up the, themselves um, to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, the dishonoring of the bodies, because they exchanged, in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. As I mentioned in Jeremiah 10, he talks about them doing the same thing. Francis Schaeffer says uh, there is no other truth or understanding in the universe. When people throw away the God of truth, all truth is gone. All that is left are sets of opinions and personal gods and pleasures. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. I think we see it happening in our culture in two main areas. This, is, this isn't exhaustive in any way, but, but for me, I, I think we see it in two different areas. I would say the first is compartmentalism, and the second is enculturation. So the first is compartmentalism. Uh, again, I'm mentioning Schaefer. I haven't mentioned him much. He, his philosophy is, is, is really amazing. He was so far ahead of his time as far as uh, seeing where trends were going. Um, but he, he, in his book, The God Who Is There, he, he talks about a line of despair. And so he, he has this little chart where he draws a line of despair. And everything above the line of despair are things that can be known. So things that we can be certain about, he puts above the line of despair. And then under the line of despair are things that can't be known. And, um, and he says what, what happens slowly over time is the, the unknown gobbles up the known. And, and little by little, things that may be known and clear, whether we call it natural law or supernatural laws, things that may be known get questioned over and over and over again. Uh, they get questioned anecdotally. They get questioned by our experiences. They get questioned by people that we know, right? As we're talking about here about uh, gender and orientation, like I remember the very first man that I met that called himself homosexual. And I remember how meeting him and getting to know him it changed my view of the straw men that I had built up, the things that I had heard growing up as a, a strict evangelical, right? And so little by little, the unknown gobbles up the known, and they get put into this line of despair. Um, and so what has happened, compartmentalism. Uh, the Bible is good for moral examples, and, and sometimes it shows character stories. You know that more than half now in the United States, more than half of the people who claim to be Christians don't claim the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God. It has, amongst many, even people who call themselves Christian, moved below the line of despair. It's been compartmentalized. The Bible's good for this. It's not good for that. Faith is fluid. How can I tell you what to believe? If if I, it's true because I believe it. Um, the Bible and, and Christian faith have no authority in sexuality, in art, in business, and in family. It's compartmentalized, and uh, it's superseded by science, right? We, we can only believe the Bible if and when science authenticates it. So this, this week, uh, I had a midweek wedding, and... Um, 
meeting up a whole bunch of old friends in Mississippi where I used to pastor and friends and family and um, and I find myself just pretty much doing marriage counseling <laughs> one after another after another you know catching people up catching people up praying for people um, and I remember I was explaining that to a non-Christian friend of mine once and he was like why let people talk to you about their marriage you know it's like and I try not to be offended by it you know like why because they, they think Tammy's awesome and it's your it's you, you're the one that made her that way like yes that's exactly what they believe uh, and I did it me uh, no I'm like no because for almost 40 years I've studied God's word and I've lived in community with people and we've we've seen stories and we've held up stories and brokenness and fallenness and sin and, and we've held it up to the Lord's word and we've seen God the Holy Spirit bring about cleansing and reconciliation and um, and and that you know that's not just marriage relationship that's all relationships but it was in that thinking like people only go to the church to learn stories about the Bible and maybe morals and so that that's happened um, we've seen that happen in our society uh, compartmentalism then takes away really any authority that the Bible has uh, years ago when we did something called evangelism explosion uh, we would knock on doors go share the gospel with people and it was interesting because um, a lot of times if you just had your Bible you could just go to the book of Romans and we call it the Romans road we could say do you believe the Bible yes I believe the Bible this is what the Bible says Bible, Bible, this is, Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, the Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, God demonstrates his love for us in chapter 5. That while we're sinners, he Christ died for us. Um, have you trusted Christ with your life? And they're like, is that what the Bible really says? And this is what happened. Is that what the Bible really says? Yeah. Well, then I must believe it. And it's true. So that's been eroded been eroded um, God's truth is still ultimate truth and we still long for truth but what Paul is saying here is we have exchanged this truth of God for a lie one way it happens with us is compartmentalism the other especially with this topic this morning is enculturation it is a cultural truth that we unless we think critically unless uh, as the apostle says unless we have a sentry over our mind unless we have a guard over our mind and our thoughts we absorb it. Uh, two months ago, my, my brother Jonathan, who's crazy if you've met him, he's crazy if you haven't met him, uh, <laughs> his kids come home from the library and his six-year-old's got this book. He's like, hey, Dad, will you read this to me? Billy has two dads. Billy has two dads. And he looks at me, he's like, son, what did you, it's like it's in the library, another kid section. Right? Advertising. Right? It, we are enculturated into this to think it is normal or it's held by the majority. And so we Christians find ourselves, uh, if, if we feel good when Christian principles are in the majority, right? If even, even if politically we think maybe this, character, this, you know, this candidate's Christian, he has Christian values, uh, we'll overlook this or we'll overlook that, but, but oh good, we're, you know, we're at 52%. Whew. We hate being in the minority, especially if it comes to philosophy and intellect, right? We hate that. I mean... That's just the worst, right? Uh, our culture is telling us all the time, just like Joe likes Pepsi and Bob likes Coke, why can't they get along? Joe likes men, Bob likes women. That's just how they were made. Our culture is telling us that all the time, and it's getting pushed upon us 
at an ever-increasing rate. And the Bible says, that's not right. That's not true. Um, and so this truth gets uh, replaced by the lie. And so in verse 25, and he's talking about one area, but it was important to him because it was a good illustration of the concept. So when he gets to verse 25, he says, Therefore, he gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. And so we get to verse 25. We have an exchange of God's truth for a lie and an exchange of worship from creator to creation. Human beings exchange the truth of God for a lie, and so they worship the creation. And it shows itself in this instance in the lust of their bodies. And um, I want to point this out in three different things. First of all, it's this mind and heart. See, we think still, um, <clears throat> we've been taught that, that it's our heart that leads us. Follow your heart. Your heart is good. Follow your heart. Don't deny your heart. And I think what happens is we tend to think children, because they've been unstained by society, that we should trust children even more than we do adults. And follow your heart. But truly, the way human beings work is it, it, it invades our minds first. Proverbs says, as a man thinks, so is he. In our confession this morning, what do you think? You know, you, you, you're self-righteous because you've never committed, you've never cheated, you've never... Yeah, but, but what do you think? Because that's where sin breeds and is rooted as a man thinks. And so their mind is switched and they dwell on things and they think on things and they exchange the truth of God for a lie and eventually their affections follow. And we are told that our affections, we can't, affections, our feelings, our longings, our passions, that, that it's wrong for us to deny them. And now the, the wonderful thing is if you follow this out logically to its end, we are where we are today. And there's lots of problems out there today. It's not, it's not okay anymore that we just let someone think, okay, uh, you were born male, but you now want to be a female, and we're supposed to affirm that. And, and um, we're supposed to ask you before we even talk to you about what pronouns do you want to use. Um, but what if that offends me? Right? So we have created this culture of all these little gods with their little truths, and we think they're going to get along? There's no way we're going to get along. The mind and the heart, because they've exchanged the truth and they worship created things. And it's interesting, even in the midst of that, so even when Paul talks about creation and the creator, that's part of, he says, what we have to hold on to for truth. The creature-creator relationship. And when he says that word, that's why it's just one of those common ADD moments with the Apostle Paul. The creator, the creator, oh, the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. He, he pauses right in mid-sentence as he th his thoughts about God creating such beauty and wonder and perfection and it being twisted and turned. And it leads to worship. He stops to worship the Creator and he says, uh, those of us who've, who've left the truth of God, we stop and we worship creation. When we get to Romans 12, uh, Romans 11 is kind of a hinge pin. Romans 12 uh, 
it's now how do we live in, in light of these truths. Romans 12, I'm just going to read these first two verses. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So he's taken all these 11 chapters and he explained the mercy and the grace of God. It's like this is what we live under. Uh, uh, these people needed it. The self-righteous people needed it. The Jews needed it. The pagans needed it. The ignorant needed it. We all needed it. Here is how it is received. Now that we have received it, we are safe. We are secure. How do we live? He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. So he says, I appeal for you to live according to these beautiful truths. Um, to present your body now as a living sacrifice. Rather than our bodies having control of us and enslaving us. He goes, no, present your body as this living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. How do we do this? In verse 2, he says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be. This world is trying to form you and conform you into something. When we watch TikTok videos, when we see advertisements, the world is conforming us. When we have these heroes, whether they're sports heroes, business heroes, we have these, the world is conforming us and saying, this is who you need to be to be significant. This is who you need to be worthwhile. This is who you need to be to be beautiful. This is what you need to do to be successful. He says, don't do that. Don't allow the world to do it, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind, set your mind on the heavenly realm. Set your mind on Christ. And he goes, that by testing, you may discern what the will of God is. They exchange the glory of God for worship. And lastly, they exchange the natural for the unnatural. So verses 26 to 27, he says, this is that progression. We leave the truth of God, which tells us who we are. Man, man has to exist. Mankind has to exist in relationship to the creator. It's this beautiful picture of God having his divine counsel and creating man and woman in the beauty of a garden, the beauty of relationship and saying, uh, we, let's create man in our own image. Let's breathe an eternal soul into man. He is highest of all the creatures. He is to rule and have dominion and have authority. And I'm to have a relationship with him that far surpasses any of the creatures or creation. This is man. He is precious to me. They exchange what is natural for the unnatural. And it says here three steps. They dishonor their bodies. It means their bodies aren't used correctly. God given an assigned gender in the early chapter, he says, what may be known is plain to them. What is more plain to a human being? Right? What's the first thing I heard when my son Jordan was born? Right? What is the first thing they heard outside the room? What did they hear me yell? It's a boy. It's a boy. Simple. Bring a little boy into the world. It's a princess. natural for the unnatural bodies are dishonored this is not just Paul people think he hates women he's no it, it, it's Genesis it's Exodus it's Leviticus it's all the way through the scriptures God given an assigned gender is question maleness and femaleness seem to be erased their bodies are dishonored and it says as a result then they are consumed one of the one of the um Translation says they burn because there's no legitimate way to be quenched. They give way to passion. And they're not free. 
They're consumed by it. It is as though it is some addiction such that these passions replace a person's identity. I am a blank and defined by sexual orientation or perversion. Let me tell you, we have to be so clear in our gospel. And our gospel isn't good, just good news for heterosexual people. It's good news for everybody. And if I define myself by anything other than Christ, I am denying the beauty and the power of his gospel. I am a child of God. I've been bought with a price and I belong to him. He has complete authority on who I am and what I am to do. I find my freedom in following his direction for my life. He said they were consumed by it. And their truth was ruined. And they commit, in our text it says shameless, and it's interesting how words change. Even the New American Standard, um, it says shameful acts. They committed these shameful acts. The thought here is that the, the acts are unnatural and they're shameful and that it happens with fallen men and women. And rather than actually being ashamed, we'll see next week, they practice them in front of everyone and they want the approval of others. I was listening to an interview of a LBGTQ professor talking about the, the prevalence among transgendered people and wanting to take their lives. Uh, how how this, just those statistics are so high. And I just broke my heart because I thought, you're not really helping. You're not really helping. There's something unnatural, something wrong in them that says, oh, every cell of my body is saying one thing. Somehow in my mind, it's saying something else. And it's not even enough for me to dress a certain way. It's not even enough for maybe even my parents to accept me. Unless all of society accepts me, maybe then what's wrong inside will feel right. And our text goes on to say, then they commit these acts and they receive in themselves, the text says, the due penalty for their error. And that's left vague. Uh, and, and not for me to say that's, that's what this penalty is, that's what theirs is, but what is he saying? They suffer. And I encourage you, O oh Christian, if you know anybody that is struggling with this, or maybe they're not even struggling, they're all into this. What they need is the love of Christ. What they need is not for a Christian person to come and say, straighten up all of these things and then you can present yourself to God and he will accept you. We are to love our enemies. We are to pray for those who persecute us. But it is not loving to be untrue. It is not loving to be unkind. It is not loving to say those things don't matter. Everybody else matters that don't agree with you or don't approve of you. No, it is a loving thing to say your soul is in turmoil and you're wrestling with these things. I mean, and, and, and not to get, not to come across superior or more intellectual. It's hard not to. I mean, it is. It's as if our, our science and medical technology has created problems that we would have had, we didn't have 100 years ago. 
there was no way for a little boy to start taking some kind of some some kind of uh, hormone blockers, right? It was just it was like, son, I'm sorry you feel that way. Get out in the field and pull some weeds and see how you feel when you're done with that, right? I mean, it seems so so easy and so foolish, um, but our place is a place of compassion. But it is a place of truth. It is the truth in love. Now, I have personally, uh, I, I question whether to share this because it makes me seem really great, and I'm, I'm not. I'm a mess. I'm, I'm such a product of the grace of God. It's just amazing. But I purpose to love some gay men in my life. I purpose to do that because I, I wanted them to know that men love men. I think Chef and I were having lunch one day. He, got, he goes, love you, Rev. And I said, I love you, too. And some lady's like, wow, I love, I love seeing that, you know. Um, but these men, I, I wanted to demonstrate that, that what our world says, the, the epitome of love is some kind of sexual expression. That's just reserved for one relationship. That's reserved for one relationship. So I'm going to love lots of women in our church and in our family, but the, the intimate relationship is reserved for one person. When I brought my children to this world, I said, one thing you're going to have to fight, sons and daughter, your whole life is sexual temptation. You're going to just have to fight it. I'm sorry, you might think it's going to be done when you're married. You're going to have to fight it. You're going to have to control it. You're going to be tempted to express it in all different ways, and you're going to be told that you're missing out. How do we, how do we in our children promote love, and and its highest expression is not intimacy. Its highest expression is the gospel. Its highest expression is when you're wronged and when you're hurt and when you're misunderstood and you respond in love and grace. That's the highest expression of love when we are committed to a person because we've decided to be committed to a person. Not because that person makes us feel good. Not because that person fills all of our needs. Not because that, that, that person has the power over me. No, because Christ has made a commitment to me. Francis Schaeffer, in writing on um, the, the penalty, the due penalty for their sins, um, if you like philosophy, he's very hard to beat. Francis Schaeffer is very hard to beat in philosophy. I, it, it's, it's great. I had some friends that were struggling with their Christian faith in the philosophy department, and I gave him my complete work, seven volumes. And when he got through volume four, he's like, I think this has saved my soul. Uh, he goes, I just feel like he's answered these questions that I didn't think Christianity answered. But Francis Schaeffer uh, and his wife, Francis Schaeffer, almost left the ministry. Well, he did for a period. And he said, I have to go back to the, the very foundation of what is truth and how do I know it's truth. And, um, and so he went back to the very foundation of how do I know anything and, and, and came back to this faith in Christ. And then he founded a place called Labrie. Some of you may have heard of Labrie. The first one was in Switzerland. And it was a place that you sent people struggling with sexual addiction, people struggling with drug addiction, people, uh, a lot of fallen priests and ministers, they would go to Labrie. And they would, they would work in his vegetable gardens, and then they would read the scriptures, pray, and talk philosophy in the afternoons. And he wrote um, in his book, The Finished Work of Christ. It's a beautiful book, just a short book, The Finished Work of Christ. He writes, 
if you minister among people such as this, and he lists homosexuals, women who have made their womanhood a commodity, prostitutes, you will see people who have become absolutely miserable after an initial deceptive attraction. While giving satisfaction on some level of relationship, homosexuality in any denial of the real world, it creates no continuity, contradicts the identity of the person as a child of a father and a mother. Sad lies end with a head full, handful of ashes strewn to the wind. Of course, sin brings misery at any level, right down the line. But Paul points out here its awful results in these particular areas. They exchange the natural for the unnatural. There is a time of persecution maybe coming for us, and we must be careful that we're not surprised by it, but we also must be diligent that when persecution comes, we preach the gospel. We just have to be so clear because our enemies will say, those people think God loves them because they're heterosexual. Those people think God loves them because they haven't committed this sin or struggled with that sin. And our gospel must be crystal clear. We, well, let me tell you, here's, here's how Paul puts it. I love, here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. He says to this church in Corinth, maybe one of the most decadent cities in the Roman kingdom. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. He says, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you. Isn't that beautiful? Such were some of you. Were some of you. These were your identities. Immoral, adulterer, thieves, greedy, drunks, swindlers, such were some of you, but you were washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You see, there is another exchange, and that's the beauty of our gospel, it's an exchange. He takes our filthy rags, he takes our dysfunction, every one of them, he takes our sin, our rebellion. He takes it upon himself and he faces the wrath of God on our behalf and he gives you his righteousness. This is just one area, right? This is an area that currently the church is going to abut our, 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 our culture. But just about every area, the gospel will, will just come up against us. Um, but that's the exchange that gives us hope. Uh, not this is some sin I haven't committed, but all the sins I've committed, and all the ones I don't even know about. My Savior loves me so much that He has taken that penalty upon me. So we treat those who disagree with us and those who persecute us, and heads up, some of those who persecute the church may be other people that call themselves Christians. Our persecution may arise from other Christians or Christian denominations. We treat them as creatures designed to give God glory. 
And we pray for those who persecute us. And we show love to our enemies. Because maybe the biggest failure that I've had as a Christian is in the way I've treated those who are diametrically opposed to what I stand for because of God. And I don't know the best way around this. It, it may be that we pray to the Lord that he gives us as much disgust over our own sins as we exhibit over the sins of others. As much disgust. Because I truly, I'm not just saying that, I truly believe that my sins are more heinous because I have a relationship with him. When I distrust the Father, I'm distrusting the Father who's rescued me and held me by his side for 50-some years. When I distrust the Father, I, I have nothing, nothing to point to and say it's because of this. You didn't do this. You didn't give me that. But maybe that's what it'll take for us. But don't back away from him. Don't be afraid. All of his word is good. It is good. It is good for us. It is good for our community. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we, we just, maybe more than ever, we just lay ourselves at your feet. Say, oh Jesus, help, help our culture. Help those that we know and we love. Lord, I, I suspect everyone in here has a, a child, an uncle, maybe themselves, a cousin, a brother, sister that struggles with some form of sexual dysfunction, some form of identity dysphoria. And we struggled. How do we, how do we love them? Those of us with kids, when we bring them, how, how, are we gonna, how do we explain this to them? How, will you help us, Lord Jesus? I do believe, Father, first you would have us just revel in the grace that you have given to us. As he says in Ephesians that we were dead in trespasses, it says in Corinthians that this is what some of us, and you have washed us and cleansed us. And so help us, Father. Help us to be bold for the sake of Christ, not for our own agenda. Bold for the sake of Christ. Help us, Father, to have compassionate hearts for those who wrestle in areas that are so foreign to us. And now, Lord, as we take this bread and we drink this cup, we set apart these elements for us, will it be another way that we celebrate the power of your gospel? That we eat bread, and to us it nurtures our souls, that your body has taken place of our body, that you kept every single law in your flesh and blood, and you have given that record to us freely through Christ. As we drink the cup, we celebrate the fact that your blood flowed instead of ours. And so at this great cost, you have adopted a people to yourself. And you have called us your beloved and you have chosen to not treat us as our sins deserve, but to treat us as Christ deserves. May we celebrate this, Father, in all its truth. May you nurture our souls and our hearts. That we might give you glory in our bodies and in our minds. We ask in Jesus' name.